impact, income, and influence. It's the three things that are most important to entrepreneurs today, and that's what this podcast is all about. If you're a coach, consultant, author, blogger, YouTuber, creator, or entrepreneur who believes what they do can change the world, this podcast is dedicated to you. I'm Steve Warner, and welcome to Impact, Income, and Influence. Welcome back to Grow Your Impact, Income, and Influence, the number one show for monetization, clarity, growth on the internet. Today, I am joined by Mitch Beinhacker. Mitch, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thanks, Steve. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show today. This is fun. No problem. It is my pleasure. So Mitch is a lawyer. Before you cringe, he is not the kind of lawyer that is going to sue you. He is here to help you grow your business and protect your assets while you're doing it. He has a heart for entrepreneurs. Mitch, tell us where this all started for you, because I don't know too many lawyers that actually love entrepreneurship. Yeah, I've always been kind of a, um, a business person businessman at heart. When I was young, you know, during the summers, I never really had a, a regular job. I always had little companies I was running. I'd be, uh, you know, running a business stringing rackets for all the players because I was a tennis player. And um, I, in my high school, I guess, like beginning of high school, I started a detailing company. Remember detailing was really big. And, you know, instead of just cleaning your car. So I started doing it for my uncle and some people at his office. And the next thing I know, we had people lined up like, cause they didn't have time to get their cars washed either. So they were like, Oh, can you do our car? So it became like a business. I had a distributor of, of materials and I sold the thing at the end of, uh, end of high school. And then when I got to college, I, I majored in economics and finance and personal finance, things like that. Um, but it was business, you know, it was like the division that I found that I could get into or whatever, you know, the games you have to more games today than then. And, um, I didn't really want to go to business school. I was like, oh, I get my MBA and I'm being an analyst. I don't think I want to do that. I was more, more of an entrepreneur. But in those days, there wasn't entrepreneur curriculums. You know, like nowadays, you can major in entrepreneurship. Then it was like, why would you do that? Like that's, you know, major in comic books. I mean, so, <laughs> you know, entrepreneur wasn't like this word. It was like a French word, right? Now, now everybody's an entrepreneur. So I guess, um, I then was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. My Jewish grandmother, may she rest in peace, was like, whatever you do, go to law school. And my uncle went to law school. My cousins have gone to law school. My dad didn't go to law school, but my other uncle was a doctor. You know, that's what happens in Jewish families. So I was like, I don't know. So one day my best friend, Greg, in our fraternity house, he was probably drunk, so I'll preface this, said, I'm going to law school. And I was like, all right, I'll go to law school too. So about two weeks later, Greg sobered up and he's like, I'm not going to law school. And then I was like, oh. Do I really want to go to law school? I was just drunk with Greg. So I decided, you know what? I wasn't ready to go work. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wanted to become more analytical, a better writer, or certainly a better reader. It wasn't my strong point. So I decided to uh, find a law school that would take me, give me some money. Because my dad was like, listen, I got to take care of your sister. So good luck. And uh, yeah, so I did that. My grandmother said she was going to pay for law school, but she thought it was 1500 a year instead of 15000 So nice. she helped, but it didn't quite... Didn't quite cover the books, but um, did you start a business to pay for law school? Please tell I me. I should have. Oh, I should have. I didn't. So when I got into law school, I kind of dropped the whole, you know, business things. But then after law school, I started up, was involved with different real estate companies and different things like that. But I was kind of defaulted to being 
you know, the lawyer, like, so what happened was my father has been in the life insurance business since like 1965. So I know all kinds of financial planners throughout the area, hundreds and hundreds. So, and I know their business. So what would happen is instead of me being the, like the partner in the deal or involved in the business, they'd be like, well, we need an attorney to do this, to do that, to put this agreement, to negotiate this transaction, to deal with this lease. And it just, you know, blossomed from there. And I also do a lot of estate planning because of that too, as part of it. So. Gotcha. Yeah. So you have a wide world of experience and influence coming into this. Um, I want to talk a little bit. So the show is mostly entrepreneurs. They're out there listening. I want to talk about the things that you've kind of done for your entrepreneurial clients. You've protected them a little bit. You've helped with um, helping them become bought out, right? Getting them. Uh, yeah, we've done some sales, for? purchases, acquisitions. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think a lot of people are interested in that because a lot of people start first off entrepreneur as a French word. That is a brilliant way to look <laughs> at it because I think that's what it was. Um, if you would have yeah. said in, you know, the late nineties, I want to be an entrepreneur. People would have been like, what you want to do what you want to sell lemonade. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and now it's like, I think colleges got smarter because they started looking at like, well, why aren't people going to college? Well, they're being an entrepreneur. Well, right. you can teach that. I, I still think it's funny. I think it's like, tummy. yeah, I think Babson college was the first school to have an entrepreneurship program. I think, I mean, it's to me, it's tongue in cheek. Cause it's like, if you're really an entrepreneur, are you going to spend four years in college? No, you're going to Steve jobs or Bill Gates and probably Jedi. All right. So, so Steve, that's the problem though. Like that's the problem that, that, that people get into is because they think if you're a small business owner, if you're an entrepreneur, that yeah. means you're a cowboy and you're you and you're running around. And then people do that and their businesses fail. So that's why we have such a high failure rate of business that the people that go into business, and I don't know if they consider themselves founders or executives or startups or, or entrepreneurs, maybe mm -hmm. they come through business school, college, entrepreneurship programs with sound principles to writing a business plan, putting things in writing, being strategic about what they do. And you find that their level of success is much higher, right? Than the people that are like, you know, I can't get into college, so I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Like, don't, don't do that. So even if you can't go to night school, take classes, you know, learn from the people that, that know, but I, I think your point's a good one. That's, that's why my podcast is called the accidental entrepreneur, because it's people, you know, it's like, Oh, I don't like work. So I'm going to go start a business. And then six months later, they're asking me to help them wind down their business because it didn't make it. Well, that's I, so if we talk about that, I think it is really a good sound business principles. I don't think you need an 80 page business plan. I'm a big fan. Absolutely of not. I agree I'm with big, you a hundred percent. Big fan of short. I got like four major sections, like a template you can boil it down to, and it doesn't have to be bound and it doesn't have to be color and it doesn't have to be in a binder, but it's gotta be something you can pull up on your computer. You can refer to, you can use right. change, right? But don't have it on napkins and post-it notes all over your office. You gotta be a little bit more organized than that. Does it keep me in my lane? Because that's right. the easiest, the, the biggest challenge I think entrepreneurs have is shiny objects. They're out of their lane. They're doing- They're very right brain. Yeah, very right brain. If you could stay in your lane, yeah. you're going to be way more successful. So I have a couple of really good friends that are successful entrepreneurs. Um, I would say half of them have an MBA or at least a business, like a business degree, maybe right. it's an undergrad. I would say three of them that I know have MBAs. They worked for either corporate consulting or they worked uh, in like a business management role before doing their own. And they were all successful much faster. 
I would say within six to eight months, they were profitable and yeah. they have gone on to build a seven figure business. Uh, one of them did it within a year. Yeah. Well, cause they knew what profitable was. I mean, a lot of people don't. And, and look, there's a lot of people that are successful. Don't get me wrong. They don't even have a college education. Everybody says there's no correlation between where you go to school or what you do and all this stuff. That's true. But a lot of those people are successful in one thing. Like they find the thing that they're successful in and they do it and they figure it out and they do it well. Then they transition to another business and they struggle a lot. They yeah. sell their business and they can't, you know, it was like a one-off, maybe two-off. But you're right. The guys who, who develop sound skills and go in it strategically and know what their profitability is and know what their cost of goods sold are and know what their, their pricing should be, definitely have a higher chance of, of well, success. Let's, so let's unpack that a little bit because I do think that is a key. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty active in the coaching world and a lot of people become coaches because they're right. like, I don't like my job. So yeah, I know it's like a default thing. So I'll be a coach and right. then they struggle to make a couple grand a month and they're struggling, 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 but like they're not looking at cost of acquisition. They're not looking at what their average client lifetime value is. They're not right. looking at any of the numbers. And there's basically like three or four numbers that you have to have boilerplated, know what they are. So where would you actually, this is a great conversation because you're bringing it from a very yeah, analytical it. point. Yeah, I love it. Tell me what you would look for if somebody is out there and they're like, I'm leaving my job. I want to start a business. What should they put on their one-page business plan? At what number should they they start to flesh out? Yeah, the lean canvas, right? If anybody's looking, listening. Um, all right, so so I've looked at business plans and business templates, let's say, right? Because you can go online and find some. They're anywhere from eight to twelve sections on a regular basis, right? But if you boil things down, there's really only four things that you need to pay attention to. Okay. You got to obviously pay attention to whatever your product or service is, right? The company or the product. Is it a company or is it just one product or whatever? The people that you need to run that company, if it's just you, great. But if it's not just you, if you don't have the skills, how are you going to get these people? Can you get these people? That may be a roadblock right there. The third thing is the marketing in the marketplace, right? Is there a marketplace? How do you market this thing? How are you going to develop business? All that type of stuff which is probably where all the creative stuff comes in, right? And then the fourth, obviously, is the financials. Now, you, like you said, you don't need 80 pages of spreadsheets and, and projections out the wazoo, which, by the way, if you go out more than three to five years projecting, you know, they're wrong. They're probably wrong more than a year, but three years is probably a good number. So, And it also depends whether you're raising capital or you're just doing it for your own edification. So, And then the financials, that's what nobody wants to deal with. They don't like numbers. I don't like, but that's where all the failure happens because- you, you know, you're charging $12 for your product and you find out it costs you 14. That's not going to get you very far. <laughs> right. So if you, if you just kind of sketch out those four areas, you have the working framework of a business plan, right? You have a place to start to go back. And the reason, like you had mentioned before that you need a track to run on the reason you need a track to run on. And this is a chapter in one of the books that I'm working on. Well, the only book I'm working on really um, about memory, right? We don't, remember things correctly. That's why you need to have contracts. That's why you need to have written plans. That's why you need to write, do things in writing because whatever it is, you won't remember what it was, right? Our brains don't work like a filing cabinet. It works like a big box where everything's dumped in there. And then you want something about our podcast, let's say, right? So I pulled this out. This was my experience about us talking, what we talked about. But over time, things get added into that and mushed in with that. And I think, well, no, I no, I was talking about you know, the cost of meatballs in Italy with Steve, I'm sure, because I know that he said, 
totally not true, right? And that's what happened. So you need a track to run on to go back and to say, oh yeah, I forgot. And to remind yourself, because that's why these guys are successful because they write things down, right? That's, I want to touch on that really quickly. Like you touched on just having contracts. One of the things that I had to learn when I got started was always follow up. Even if it's not like a legally bound contract, you might, I, you might disagree with this being a lawyer, but like, I just send an email when we're starting to work together. This is the outline of what I'm agreeing to do in return for this amount of money, because then three months down the road, when somebody says, well, I thought, you know, you were including a 28 step email sequence with a landing page, right? They, no, no, no. Here's the email. Well, here's the note I sent you didn't respond. You didn't say no. No, I, yeah. I make them. I mean, I, it costs nothing to have a signature program. So I have right. a signature program. You can do that. That's just, perfect. And I tell them right up front, this isn't legally binding. That's not why I'm sending it to you. I'm sending it to you so that you see it and we're on the same page because that will make our relationship much better. Well, it is to a certain extent legally binding. If they claim, Steve, you didn't do your job. You led me to believe we were doing X, Y, and Z. And you say, no, you signed off on it on April 22nd that we're doing this. And this was the scope of our work. Then they can't come back and argue with you. I tell homeowners when they're doing home improvement projects with builders mm -hmm. who are notorious for not putting things in writing, that when you have a discussion with your builder, even if he doesn't give you a change order, send him an email, send him a letter, put it in a book, say, Somewhere. hey, Steve, you were here. We talked about this. You're doing this, this, and this. There was no extra charge for these three items. We're going to pay you for this. This was the cost. And then when he says, because he won't remember, he's got 14 jobs going on, can't keep track of anything. He, he's going to say, I, we never we never spoke of that. And you know, here and uh, yeah, here it is. And as a matter of fact, I, I've had personally situations like that where I had to go back to the builder and he says, we never discussed it. And this is no, I sent you an email about it. It's like, talk to your guy when he was in the house and he said, here, listen, you want me to run some extra wire up to the attic? I have it in my truck. It's free. Okay. And I sent you that email to confirm it. And you didn't, you know, yep. and he, oh that's yeah, I forgot about that. You know, so that's a very, very, very good well, I mean, that's advice. the very first, uh, the very first business coach that I had told me that he said, after you get done with a zoom call or a conversation, follow up with a bullet point email that says, Hey, yep. these are the things that we discussed. Um, just want to, even if it's not a contract and it's not an agreement for work. No, but it shows the dealings between the parties. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. And, and it's because and of our, the, the fallacy, or I don't know if this is the right word, the failing of our memory. So the world, the taxing authority, the government, the courts, they expect our memories to be perfect. That's the way the law works in expecting you to remember things and to tell the truth and this and that. You could easily lie and not know that you're lying. I mean, it happens all the time. Look at that. I was talking before about the, the whole Brian Williams thing. Remember when we went on TV? It was like a 10 year anniversary of this thing. We shot down. Turns yeah. out three days later, it wasn't even on the helicopter. Well, there's no way that Brian Williams did that to sabotage his own career. I mean, that's stupid. Right. Clearly, whatever it was, he believed in his mind over time, all the experiences that this guy has, that he was there. Well, I mean, just if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't know about that. Think back to high school. Think about the first date you went on. Think about a football I game. Remember you went to. Yeah. Like, right. we, like we put our own ideal situation into that. I mean, listen to your grandpa's stories. Right. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious, but it's not. No, I don't. I agree with you. I don't think very many people do it maliciously. No, it's human nature. Right. Yeah. yeah. So but it's human nature to tell stories that support your feelings and you support your belief about what happened. And well, she was the hottest girl in school and maybe she wasn't. Maybe she would only go out with you. I don't know. But your mind does that to you. That's our part of our defense mechanisms. People got to recognize that. And that's why they got to do what you said.
That is to document the the conversation, the dealings between you, because if it if it's not a contract, right, and you have text messages and you have little emails and comments back and forth, you'll also have the issue of, well, what about that conversation we had on the phone? You're like, we didn't have a conversation on the phone. Yes, we did. Now you're somebody's lying, you know, so it becomes difficult. Yeah. The I think communication, I, the the side benefit of this is it forces you to be become much better at communication because yes. you see how you communicated with people and you're like, right. Ooh, I don't know if they really got that this is what I wanted from that or that right. I understood them. Um, something else that I learned, I learned this working in restaurants, always repeat things back to people yeah. because they may not, they may think that they said something, but and they said it differently. It happens all the time. Right. You read something, I show you to proofread and go, yeah, you missed that word there. And you're like, I could have sworn another word was there. Your mind filled it in. Just, I mean, just repeating stuff back to people. So I want to go down just because I think that it is hugely beneficial to people to hear from a lawyer. What are some things that they should set up in the beginning of their business Mm -hmm. to safeguard themselves and like safety net their business? What are, because I think a lot of people are concerned about money, but they're also concerned about like they they've heard all these stories. Oh, I could get sued. Oh, this could happen to me. Somebody could come in and take my business. I want you to kind of dismell some myths and give us a best practice. I'll let you have the floor for it. Okay, sure. And then you'll, you wave me down when you say, okay, Mitch, we've talked enough about this. Okay. So the first thing is, is if you're starting a business, you want to make sure that from a liability standpoint, you're protected. You talk about getting sued, right? And people coming after you, whatever. So you, you certainly want to make sure you have some basic insurance, like a business owner's policy, even if you're a consultant. So talk to your local agent and find it shouldn't be, you know, it might be 50 bucks a month. We're not talking a lot of money, a lot less than what you would have. And one of the advantages of that is that if you do get sued for some liability reasons, the insurance company is going to defend you. So you're kind of buying a lawyer, okay? So that's the first thing. Also, do never never operate as a sole proprietor, okay? Sole proprietors are for, you know, you and I and hobbies, stuff like that, okay? Because for $128 in a state filing fee and, a, and an online filing application, you can have an LLC set up in a tax ID number for no money. And if you got to pay somebody to do it, maybe it's 500 bucks plus the filing fee. Okay. Yeah. And then you want to follow the formalities of running a company, separate bank account. You pay the business expenses out of the business account, not out of your personal account, because that's always a, an Achilles heel. The guys that set up businesses and then use that business pay their entire life. It's the smart attorney, not me, who's going to say, Hey, you really don't have a business. You're personally liable for all this stuff. And you don't want to do that. Uh, you know, fraud aside, if you commit fraud, it doesn't really matter any of this stuff. Um, you were shaking your head. You had a point? No, I okay. just, I agree. Like, this is stuff that I see all the time. I all mean, the time. I'm honest. Exactly. I have, I've made some of these mistakes. I've been corrected. Um, yeah. But Well, but that's what experience brings you. So if you hire an attorney, I've been doing this for 25, 29 years. You hire an attorney, he's got 20, 25, 30 years of experience. He's clearly done more of these than you have. So there are things that he wants in a contract, how he's going to structure the business, what's going to go in an operating agreement. So, so you have an LLC or you have a corporation, right? If you have a corporation, you get a corporate book, you get certificates, you got to issue the certificates, you got to create bylaws, follow formalities. With an LLC, it's a little bit different. LLC is more, you can set the rules yourself. So if it's if it's a sole, just you, solo consultancy, you probably don't need an operating agreement because making an agreement with yourself is kind of silly, right? 
unless you're getting a bank loan or they need an agreement. But if you have a partner, clearly you should have something in writing that says who owns what, who makes what decisions, who's responsible for what, what happens if you want to break up, you know, who gets the intellectual property, who gets the website, all that kind of stuff, because the littlest businesses end up in the biggest fights over all this stuff after they've been operating. And that shouldn't be very difficult. You know, if I, if I do an agreement for somebody, it's anywhere from $2,500 to $3,500, but it doesn't have to be that formal. You can, I'm sure you can find something online or whatever, but definitely have somebody review it. Okay. I mean, just going back to our write it up, <laughs> go back and forth between two people till you're both happy with the language and then take it to somebody to review. Right. The attorney will add in the legalese and all the stuff. Yeah. Right. And usually, by the way, and this doesn't go just for operating agreements, contracts, usually what's missing when lay people do contracts is the side of the agreement that deals with if things fall apart, right? So if you if you approach it that way and you say, okay, well, if things go awry, like if everything works out, you and I, we don't need contracts ever, right? It's, it's all the misunderstanding. So if the misunderstanding happens, what takes place? Do we go to a mediator? Is it binding? Is it not binding? We go to an arbitrator. Do we go to court? Do we, who pays for the fees? You know, what, all that type of stuff. And that's usually what's overlooked. Okay. Then if you are dealing with, well, let's say you're B2B. So if you're dealing with other business owners, you're selling something to them, you're providing a service, you have to have a standard client agreement. And I have people tell me, yeah, but I mean, I don't know. It feels so sleazy to ask them to sign an agreement. I, well, then go, then go, you know, chew gum in the parking lot. I mean, it's not, you're in if you're going to, right. If you're in business, first of all, they would not surprisingly, they would, it's professional to have a client agreement, right? Clearly we, I don't think anybody disagrees with that. So you have to get comfortable with how you approach it, how you present it. That's something for you to learn. You can ask other people, what do they do? Talk to business coaches, right? Talk to other people, you know, we're in business. What are they? You probably find out six out of eight of them don't have contracts, but you know, they should. So then you create some sort of a generic client agreement. And maybe you do go to an attorney one time, you end up with a template that you can then fill in with the legalese. You want to say things like, if there's a, a dispute, where do you file this is how suit? We handle it. Yep. This is right. This is how we handle it. There's something you want to have in contracts that if you draft the agreement, because you're providing them the contract, that any ambiguities in the contract, because language is always up for interpretation, are not in and of themselves construed against you, because courts will do that. They'll say, well, Steve, you drafted the agreement and this doesn't seem clear. We're going to construe this against you in his favor. So you want to say, you can say in there that the parties have reviewed this agreement. Don't, you know, construe those against me. And then uh, other things like if one of the provisions is found to be illegal, I don't know, let's say you charge too much interest for whatever you're loaning, that it doesn't void the entire agreement, yep. stuff like that. Right. So that's, that's that. And then if you're dealing with the public, with consumers, you want to, of course, have a, some sort of a contract, some sort of a sale agreement or something. You want to make sure, depending on what you're selling, that you don't have to deal with a, a get municipal approval. You need a, a, a license or something. You need the Board of Health to sign. I mean, I can't, I can't tell you how many people I see on Facebook and they, my husband makes great wings. He's cooking them out of the kitchen and yeah. selling them on Facebook. There's no way he's had the health department come because they wouldn't approve it. Yeah. Yeah. You can't cook out of your own kitchen. So there's some huge liability there. So that's, and then you want to kind of mat, mat, match that up or marry it up with your insurance. So talk to your insurance broker and say, hey, I'm doing this. What kind of insurance do you think I need? Now, look, you can always go overkill with that stuff. I don't know if you need cybersecurity and EPLI if you have no employees, certainly. But 
you need basic liability package. And you got to make sure that if you're doing certain things that the insurance company is aware of what you're doing, you know, like for example, let's say you have a delivery service and you have the kids, high school kids doing deliveries with their car. Are, are they, are you, does your insurance cover them or does our insurance cover them, which it might not if they don't disclose it. So you want to make sure that all that stuff is kind of, you know, on, and then you're kind of good to go. You got your business plan, you got your company set up, you, you know, you, you got your agreements in place and you can start to work on everything else, but at least you got the, the umbrella over your head. So I, the thing that I want everybody listening to this to take away is if you are in business, if you are starting a business, drive that stake in the ground and do this stuff because yep. it goes, if you're going to be a business owner, you have to be comfortable talking about sales. You have to have a client agreement. You right. can do it without, but it will, it will cause you so much pain. You will quit your business. I know. Right. It's like people that never file their tax returns and 15 years later, they haven't filed the tax returns. Well, yeah, the IRS might never catch up with you, but if they do, it's going to be painful. Yeah. Like, I mean, it, all you have to do is set up basic things. And the so the biggest excuse that I hear for this stuff, I hear two things. One, I don't know where to start. Two, right. I'm scared of how much it is going to cost. So I'm just going to ask you point blank, like, what should it cost? You you touched on filing fees for an LLC. Right. Um, an LLC in Nevada, which is where I'm at, is it cost me seven, I think six, 650 to file, do all of it online through a, a well known or something like that. It was, uh, I think it was called Zen, Zen Legal, maybe. Okay. It's a well known, like, I reviewed that includes sites. the filing fees with. Yep. Yeah. It cost, and they, they send me an email a month before and two weeks before and the day before my documents are due each year. Yeah. So then they give me templates. It's super right. easy. It, Nevada is one of the more expensive states to incorporate in. Right. It is. Um, so a couple hundred bucks there. Insurance. I actually do not have insurance. You're one of one. I think you're two people that have told me that I actually should maybe have business insurance. Just a basic bop business owner's policy, 25, 50 bucks a month. I looked at no, it. $500,000 of liability, you're fine. Yeah. Somebody else told me, and they said the same thing you did. If you ever get sued, they're just going to pay for the lawyer to show up and settle out of court. Correct. Which I, I'm, now I'm looking at a bigger liability, like umbrella policy, which is a different story. Yeah, but, that's a whole nother story. But okay, so we've got insurance. We've got an LLC. Yeah. A basic standard operating agreement. If So an operating agreement, you touched on this, 100% true. You want to think about as painful as weird as it is, what's this going to look like if we break up? I've I've been in two business partnerships, both of them we had those beforehand, thank goodness, because it made it very easy and no one had to get cringy about having the conversation. Hey, yeah. this is what we drew up. Cool, let's do it. Okay. And like the business dissolved with no problems. Right. No there's nothing to argue about. Yeah. I've had a couple during COVID that were small, like retail type operations that didn't have anything in writing and it was a shit show and they definitely spent more money than any of their equipment was worth on legal fees. So now, I told you I don't litigate. So I had to take my client to a friend of mine who handled the litigation because I was trying to negotiate and the other side were nuts. Well, they want money. Yeah. Not only that, they had one of them that I think of in particular, the partner, cause they were, they weren't kids, but they were younger. Let's say they're in their thirties. One of the partners, I think it was her dad or something, was like a construction guy, all kinds of money, and she was upset, whatever. So he was just funding this whole thing. He didn't care whether it cost him money or not. 
So, oh. so my guy got screwed. I mean, they recently settled it, but, but my point is, is that you, you can't, you can't underestimate the value of having something like that until it happens to you. The smallest of things, just like estates. I've had crazy estate contests over the littlest of things when somebody doesn't have a will, you know? Well, so, okay. So I want to move you the want to, You want to ask the price though. You want to well, come I up, think right? Total price, like what? Three, four grand? Yeah. If you need an operating agreement. If you don't, if you, you could set up an LLC through me, for in New Jersey for $628.50. You get the certificate, tax ID number, and your first filing with New Jersey. And New Jersey, you don't need a service. They have this thing where you say, please notify me. You put your email and they'll send you notifications every year when, when your annual reviews, annual reports do. And that's bare bones. If you need an operating agreement, I charge $2,500 of the operating agreement, but I include the LLC in that. So it's not 3,000. There you go. 2,500 plus the filing fee. I don't recommend it. And by the way, if you went to like um, uh, LegalZoom, for example, you don't really save that much money and you don't have a lawyer, by the way. Yeah. So probably a bad, you know, a little penny wise and pound foolish decision. Um, and you don't, by the way, I've also had people ask me, well, shouldn't I incorporate in Delaware? And then I'm, unless you're like dealing with foreign people or you're raising money, or you're going to go public, just incorporate in the state in which you live and operate. Because you have to file in both states. You'll have to get an agent in the state in which you're not located. It's going to cost you extra money, multiple tax filings. It's not worth it. Good point. That's, I mean, I've, I have been advised several different ways on that, but most people go with the same where you're at is where you like, where you want to be incorporated, unless you're doing till you break half a million to a million dollars. I've been told that then it might be worth moving, but we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Right. Correct. Um, much better. Much and there better may be advice. some motivations behind the structure, asset protection, things like that, where right. you would use Nevada or Delaware or Alaska. But yeah. beyond that, just your small business owner, yeah, don't go outside your jurisdiction. The important thing is just to get it done. So right. the next next thing that I want to kind of touch on in in the next 10 or 15 minutes, a lot of people start businesses because they want to get acquired. They want to have that exit payday. Right. Um what are, when people are starting, if you're listening to this and you want to get started in your business and you want to set it up so that it sells smoothly and quickly, what are some things first off that they need to do to set it up correctly for an exit? And secondly, what's a reason, like, how do you, like, let's talk about valuation. Cause we've all heard three X sales or five X sales. I just love your insight in that. Cause you seem pretty analytical and pretty dialed in on it. I'm somewhat dialed. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not an investment banker, but if you talk to some of the small capital advisory companies that do smaller deals like that, which is probably a good way if you're, if that's what your goal is, because the, the CapEx formulas vary from industry to industry, right? All kinds of things. And it, depending on how your books look, you're going to get a higher multiple if you've managed the company properly than if you don't. And a lot of business owners don't go into business for that. It's a lifestyle business. You know, they, they have these dreams of like selling their company, making a lot of money, but they don't operate it with that in mind, right? right? So it's very important that you do the research. I can't tell you specifically by industry. You do hear a three to five multiple common, but that's not really a rule of thumb for anything. I mean, the ones that are looking to grow and sell, I mean, they get a 20X. It just depends on the industry they're in, how well they've positioned the company and so forth. But a lot of if you want to grow your business and you want to sell your business, 
a lot of it has to do with putting the procedures in place and the operational procedures of the company and the people that you hire and, and how you operate your business. That's going to be very important to somebody who comes along who's probably another small business owner. that's looking to buy your business, right? I mean, acquisition by a larger company is a secondary issue, but if you're really looking to just grow and sell to another business owner or a group of business owners, they're going to be looking, are you, you know, are your employees on non-compete agreements and, and, and uh, employment contracts? Do you have contracts with your vendors and are they transferable? Because they probably want to buy the assets, not the business itself. Do you have, do you need certain kind of licenses? Are those transferable? I mean, all those types of things you have to pay attention to because I, I constantly review business transactions where business owners said, oh no, my employees, they wouldn't go anywhere. And the guy who's buying it kind of relying on these key people to stay with the business, not going to run it himself. So then they say, yeah, well, we have, we, you know, we don't have non-compete. We'll get them to sign non-competes. Well, something you should know about non-competes. If you don't sign it at the beginning, when you hire the person, it's kind of hard to enforce. You can do it. You got to give them, you know, give them some consideration. But, you know, basically you're saying to them, listen, sign this, or we're going to fire you. So that's not a good, that's not consideration. So all that kind of stuff you put in place and then talk to people who are, who have worked with people raising capital, have worked with founders before that have exited and find out all the things that they've done because it varies by industry tremendously. And, and I don't do a lot. I mean, I do a lot of those deals, but I don't, I'm not on that side of the, uh, of the table very often. Gotcha. So, yeah. Well, Mitch, this has been awesome chatting. Um, yeah. If people want to reach out to you, if people are interested in your services, maybe they want to have you draft an agreement, where should they go to find you? Where's the best place? Okay. First of all, I, I work in New Jersey. So I'm a New Jersey barred attorney. So if with, with the exception of like federal tax planning, they got to be in New Jersey. I got to refer all the other week. And in the middle of conversation, I realized he's in California. So, um, so that's the first thing. Also, if they go to my website, you can put in the show notes, bindhackerlaw.com. Mm -hmm. There are certain do-it-yourself stuff where if you needed a basic agreement, a will, you can do it. If you're willing to put the data in, it'll save you half the price. So instead of 2,500, it might be 1,500, 1,600, 1,700. You have to get it signed yourself, but I'll send it back to you cleaned up with signing instructions, 48, 72 hours, and you're, you're good to go. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook. The podcast is also on LinkedIn, Facebook. I think because of the system I use, I also post on Instagram and Twitter, but I rarely check that. So um, I have a chat on my computer, on my website. I think it gets to me. Somebody just sent me a chat the other day. I was like, oh, look at that. So um, if you chat, it, I think it will come to me and I will respond. But I guess that's an experiment in the making. Nice. Uh, and uh, yeah, and, and I hope they follow them, follow my podcast. You can get it on any of the directories, The Accidental Entrepreneur. So talk to me really quick. I wanted to actually finish up the show. I wanted you to talk a little bit about your show. Sure. Um, who do you have on? Talk to me about who is the I, accidental entrepreneur. Yeah, I, I get referred to a lot of people that are, you know, in business for themselves. They failed, they've succeeded, and they're doing well now. I've I've interviewed people from family-owned businesses as to how it's passed from generation to generations, kept going, and things like that. I've talked to um, social media influencers, authors. And we just had John Mann on with us, his partner, Bob Berg. I had Bob Berg on the podcast talk about the uh, the Go-Giver and the Go-Giver series, great book series. Um, I had Mike Michalowicz on my podcast, you know, any of his stuff. Nice. I, lo I love his stuff, by the way. I love his books. Um, and yeah, and, I, and I've talked to all kinds of different people all over the world. I've talked to a voice coach in Singapore um, and uh, it, I just all over Vancouver, Singapore, London, Australia all around the United States. I just try to find interesting people 
that, that work in the SMB space, that have interesting stories that are valuable to the people that are listening and can share their ideas. And like my tagline says, help them get a hold of their business. So, you know, and I would start with my first episode with this guy, Jack Killian, who's a very good friend of mine. He also did my hundredth episode, two, two part series uh, episode. And it was all about his story, which is fascinating. Awesome. So uh, that's, that's the best way to do it. Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify, all the directories. Awesome. That is in the show notes as well. So if you check those out, um, I'm definitely going to listen to some of them. I actually, okay. So profit first is an interesting book. Very good. Gets, I run my practice that way. I use profit first. Nice. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, it's got mixed reviews. It took me a while to read it actually, because so many people were like, it's just the envelope system, but it is more than the envelope system. I Much would more. definitely recommend checking it out if you're getting started in business or if you're experienced in business. Either way, if you want to have a profitable plan for your business, definitely worth reading. It won't take you that long. No, no. His books are good. The Pumpkin Plan, The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, mm -hmm. any other books, they're all, they're all good. Good stuff. Good dude. Well, Mitch, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. It's been a joy to have you here. I appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. No problem. To everybody else, until next time, take action, change lives, and make money. We will see you soon. Nothing has the ability to grow your business more than a powerful one-to-many sales presentation. If you're looking to scale your business, get your message out to more people, and close more sales in an easy and straightforward manner, head over to deathtobadwebinars.com and grab your free course today. Thanks for tuning into the show, and we'll see you next time.